Hi there. Thank you for joining us on the Redeemer Church podcast. Here at Redeemer, we exist to see Christ exalted in our church, community, and world. It is our mission to lead people into the presence of God, devotion to His Word, authentic fellowship with others, and discovering their ministry. We hope that this podcast is just one of the ways you connect to God's presence this week. Let's check out this week's message. Good morning. We continue in our Romans series to Romans chapter 7. If you're keeping track, this will be week 5 of sin. Uh, And I've been warned by Leanne, who has Romans chapter 8, do not talk about forgiveness, don't talk about grace, don't talk about so many different things that are so much more fun. I'm, I'm trapped in this pocket of sin until next week, so you have to come back to hear about, you know, the good news. Uh, I, I think we'll have some, some faucets of that for you. But before we get started, I have to tell you that this passage and I have some history together. I wrote a paper in seminary for my Pauline New Testament class on this passage. And it was the worst grade that I've ever gotten in a seminary class. Uh, so this is confession time. Why am I preaching on this topic? Not sure. Um, but why, why the poor grade? Well, I found out that this passage is one of the most intensely debated teachings that Paul offers that scholars wrestle with. Uh, So much so, in fact, that it has created this divide in scholarship between what they call the uh, old perspective, uh, which is championed by Martin Luther, and this new perspective on Paul. And this was so fascinating to me, these two different approaches, that I entirely forgot to write about the passage. I just wrote about these approaches to understanding Paul. Um, So the verses that we will be talking about specifically this morning are Romans chapter 7, verses 15 uh, through 25. I'm going to invite you to open up your Bible or your Bible app and and camp out there with me, uh, because we're going to really be digging into this text. But I do have two warnings to give you before we jump in. First, if you have never really seen me nerd out on scripture before, and I'm not talking anything that's been done in this pulpit, if you've never gotten to see this, I invite you uh, to fasten your seatbelt, put your tray in the upright position because we are about to take off. Second, we often want to turn Paul into a systematic theologian. In other words, we want Paul's letters to answer all of our theological questions. But Paul never sought out to do that. That was not his intention. The needs of the church in Paul's day were far more practical. And his letters are practical letters written to churches that were going through real problems over 2,000 years ago. So Paul takes all of his knowledge on the Old Testament and all of his knowledge about the gospel and interfaces that with the problems that local church is dealing with in that day. So in order to understand what Romans or any of his other letters might be saying, we must first understand Paul in that context before we start applying it to our day today. Because Paul was not particularly concerned about a lot of the problems we wrestle with. He could not even have anticipated these problems 2,000 years ago. So he wrote, again, I'm going to reemphasize, he wrote to very specific churches with very specific practical needs. And in these letters, we can uncover a lot about the gospel, 
and get a lot of our questions and theological questions answered only if we treat Paul as he was uh, engaging those churches. Only if we embrace the fact that Paul is not writing a complete theological handbook for us, uh, then we can apply what he's saying to our local context. I hope, all that said, you have found the passage for this morning. I'm going to read it for us. Paul says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin working within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. Traditionally, this passage has been used to support a doctrine called the already but not yet. It's a phrase that explains the reality that Jesus has already inaugurated his kingdom, but he has yet to consummate it. In other words, what we're saying is that although he reigns at God's right hand, he hasn't yet returned to heal all of the brokenness of sin that we see expressing itself day to day. So many believe that when writing Romans 7, uh, one, the whole chapter, 7, 1 through 25, that Paul is explaining the Christian struggle in this already but not yet period. That Paul is describing the internal war of the sinful nature battling against the desire to follow God's will in this already but not yet time in which we find ourselves living today. The problem with reading the, this passage in that way is that it largely ignores the, con- the, the conflict in Paul's time in that local church. It ignores the context and the frame-up that I talked to you about at first. It doesn't treat Paul as kind of a practical theologian engaging practical needs at the church in Rome. So here's the historic situation. Here's what's going on in Paul's day. In the Old Testament, there has always consisted this tension between the Jews and the Gentiles. Jews viewed themselves as the favored people of God, blessed with his law. Whereas the Gentiles were people not only without God's law, but they were also the ones tempting the Jews to disobey God. However, for the Christians in Rome, the situation flips. Emperor Claudius has expelled the Jews from Rome because of rioting in the city, likely connected to Christian preaching in the streets. And about five years later, Emperor Nero allows the Jews to return back to the city. This creates even greater tension in the church at Rome in the relationship of Jewish Christians 
and Gentile Christians. Gentile Christians were viewing themselves as superior to the Jewish Christians because God kicked them out of the city. They looked at that as a theological statement of God, the removal of the Jews from the city. Whereas the Jews didn't look at the Gentile Christians as real people of God because the Gentiles were not circumcised and they were not following God's law. This is the situation to which Paul is writing. It underscores the whole tension in the book of Romans. And so Paul is addressing whether or not a Gentile Christian ought to obey Jewish law. Therefore, it is through that lens which, with which we must read Romans 7, or we will miss the entire point that Paul is driving at. When we use this lens, we come to see that Paul isn't reflecting on the general human condition it's in the battle with sin and its nature, but on the claim that all Christians, Jewish and Gentile alike, must obey Jewish law. Paul, in Romans 7, 1 to 25, works out the Jewish experience when attempting to follow God's law. So when Paul in verse 15 says, I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And later in verses 21 to 24, for in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work with me. What a wretched man I am who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death. He's not talking about his Christian experience in Jesus. He is talking about his Jewish experience following the law from a Christian perspective. So why would he talk about such a thing in his letter to the Romans? Why would he be addressing this? Why would that be on the forefront of his mind? Well, because the Jewish Christians were wanting the Gentile Christians to strictly follow the law. But to just add believing in Jesus on top of their already established religion. Paul, however, is arguing that because of Jesus, everything has changed. You can't just take Jewish belief and sprinkle a little bit of Jesus on top and have Christianity. He's saying that's not what's going on here. Pharisaical Judaisms, their belief was wrapped up completely in legalism, following the law to a T. Obey these rules and remain in good standing. That's how you're saved. The Apostle Peter had similar reflections on this desire to impose Jewish laws on Gentile Christians in Acts chapter 15. He connects with Paul on this. Acts 15 is the Jerusalem Council's response to Paul's missionary work among the Gentiles. Peter reminds us that the council, uh, at the, this council was a reflection on his holy moment that we talked about in our last series, when God let down a sheet of unclean animals preparing him to preach the gospel to a group of Gentiles. The Holy Spirit descended on those Gentiles just as it had on Pentecost. Based on his personal experience, Peter offered these words to those demanding that the Gentile Christians be forced to be circumcised and to uphold the law. Here's what Peter says. Brothers, 
You know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows their heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. What both Paul and Peter are explaining is that the Jewish law creates this proverbial doom loop. And if you don't want to know what a doom loop is, I'm going to explain it for a second. It's a situation that we get stuck in and cannot get out. We recognize that there's a problem. But in recognizing a problem, we have yet to identify a solution to that problem. So what we get stuck is in this pattern of hopelessness. We know that there's a problem, there's something wrong. We don't see a solution to said problem, so we get stuck in this ever-tightening cycle of despair. Here's the doom loop that Peter and Paul are talking about. On the one hand, the law reveals what it means to be God's people. It defines how we are to worship God and how we are to relate to one another. But on the other hand, it also makes us acutely aware of the fact that we cannot obey it. The sinful nature that we have prevents us from obeying the law. The reality, this reality is what Paul cries out about when he says, What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Paul recognizes the doom loop. He recognizes that the law establishes how I'm supposed to live. However, my sinful nature makes it impossible for me to do anything else but to live against the law. And as he's reflecting on this Jewish, this Pharisaical Jewish experience of his from a Christian perspective, he goes, I'm doomed. That way of life is a doom loop. I can't get out. I can't escape. I will be subject to death. No other alternative. For Paul, the concern is this. If we simply sprinkle Jesus on top of strict adherence to Jewish law, then we haven't really accepted grace. We are still trapped in a legalism that will never save us. Paul addressed this in Galatians 2.21, saying this, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. In fact, if we were to read Galatians 2.19-21, we would see a very similar argument that Paul is offering but expounded way more in Romans 7. So I'm going to give you some homework. I want you today, when you leave, or this week, to read Romans 7, and then go back and read Galatians 2, 19 to 21, and see the overlaps and connections. Now perhaps you are wondering exactly what I would be wondering if I were you. Dave, that's all great. Thank you for the history lesson and what feels like a giant rabbit trail. But what does this matter? 
What does anything of this have to do with my day-to-day life? Why, why are we reflecting so deeply on this particular passage? For me, I can't talk about you, but I can talk about me. For me, it's important because I realized that I've been always reading the general human condition into Romans 7. That's how I've always been reflecting on it, that that's my Christian experience and that I can find hope and grace in the fact that Jesus saves me and that he imparts grace into my life when I can't get out. But understanding the historical background has changed my perspective. When I read this now, I see a pastor that is navigating a church conflict over how Jewish and Gentile Christians are to live a devoted life to God that is tearing the early church apart. So if Paul isn't talking about the general human condition and the general Christian experience, and is talking more specifically about a Jewish struggle with the law, what are we supposed to do with this passage? How does it impact our day-to-day? How should it impact our belief and the way we walk those beliefs out? Since I promised that last time I was here I would get back to three-pointed sermons, I have three reflections. Three big thoughts on what this passage teaches us about our faith in Christ. First, God's grace is not a cheap grace. Second, the gospel is about grace, not legalism. And third, grace leads us to an obedience that comes from faith. I'll say those again. God's grace is not a cheap grace. However, the gospel is about grace, not legalism, which leads us to an obedience that comes from our faith. Let's talk about cheap grace for a minute. As we mentioned, Paul is not talking about Christianity and the Christian experience being trapped in a doom loop. Because of Jesus, we have the power to break the doom loop. That's amazing news. We have the power, because of Christ, to break this cycle of knowing what the law expects and the sinful nature that we know that we get trapped in. We can break it, which means that we cannot just say, I am not able to escape my sinful nature, so I'm just going to allow grace to cover all of my mistakes and not work to fight against it. That particular attitude is called cheap grace. And here's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer has to say about the church's posture and embrace of cheap grace. This is what he said. Grace is represented as the church's inexhaustible treasury from which she showers blessings with generous hands without asking questions or fixing limits, grace without price, grace without cost. The essence of grace, we suppose, is that the account has been paid in advance. And because it has been paid, everything can be had for nothing. Since the cost was infinite, the possibilities of using and spending it are infinite. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. If we cling to a cheap grace, like the one Bonhoeffer talks about, then what we actually have done 
has accepted a slavery to sin. So if we think of Romans 7 as the general Christian experience, then what we have done is said that Christ was not powerful enough to break us out of the doom loop, but in fact, he was. And in fact, he did. That said, the gospel is about grace. It's not about following the law. So there's a tension here. There's this connection between God's will and obedience, as well as our ability to follow the law in grace. It is a breaking free of the doom loop, the gospel is, that subjects to sin and death. God knows that we strive to follow his will and that we are going to make mistakes. And when we do, we're called to pick up the strength of the Holy Spirit and continue marching on, never accepting the bondage to sin that Christ has freed us from. It's so important here to me that we understand this passage because I think what we're tempted to think in cultural Christianity is that grace abounds and will cover everything. And so we use grace as an excuse not to enter Christian formation or life change. And instead of realizing that Christ has truly set us free from the bondage of sin, we allow our thoughts on grace to reattach ourselves to slavery. And that's a problem. Because it's what Paul talks about. If that's the case, then Christ died for nothing. But Christ died for our freedom so that we could be under a new master. He would not want us trapped in this doom loop or this cycle of despair. Because ultimately, Romans 7 is not primarily about forgiveness. It's primarily about belonging. It's a recognition that prior to Jesus, we were slaves to sin. We belonged to sin. But as Pastor Adam talked about a couple weeks ago, our allegiance transfers. We become slaves to Christ. We belong to Christ. So we can't keep belonging to sin. We can't situate in a mastery by sin if we belong in Christ. In the words of Paul in verse 25, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. If we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, then we belong to Jesus, not to sin. That means that we will walk in in an obedience to Christ, but in an obedience that stems from an overflow of his love in our lives. I mean, Paul talks about this all the way back to the very beginning of the letter in Romans 1.5. Paul identified an obedience to Jesus Christ as one of his primary purposes of writing this letter. And this morning, we have the opportunity to testify to whom we belong by participating in communion together. In order to prepare our hearts for participating and the new covenant established by Christ, I want us to enter this corporate confession together. So if you would, say this with me. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you 
with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry, and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways, to the glory of your name. Amen. In a moment, I'm going to be reading the words of Institution by Paul. But before I do, I want to call our communion stewards to come forward as we begin preparing our, word, our hearts for what Christ has done. Hear now the words of institution written by Paul. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, the cup after supper, saying, This is the cup. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The worship team is going to lead us in a few minutes of reflection as you come forward. And what I want you to be particularly thinking of and particularly grateful is the way in which Christ's sacrifice frees you from the bondage of sin. And may you reflect on how your day-to-day life is to walk into a freedom that Christ paid such a great price for. May you not enslave yourself by your day-to-day actions to a slavery for which Christ paid the ultimate price. Please feel free to come forward when you're ready. Once again, thank you for listening to the Redeemer Church podcast. To stay connected to all that God is doing here at Redeemer, visit our website at RedeemerTulsa.org or connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Have a blessed week.